0: welcome to video store my name is sam mulberry today we are talking about the 1950 nicholas ray film in a lonely place so let's step into Baird fisher's video store barrett how you doing
1: i'm doing great sam
0: uh barrett we have watched a lot of uh film noir in this uh in this series and in this past year last year with film form at bethel we watched uh, a few more um i'm always amazed that it's like that that uh, genre can just move in lots of directions. Uh, and, and this movie was kind of amazing. And, uh, I, I love thinking about how this fits in with that, but also how much we have had, um, conversations between filmmakers over time i mean it's so clear i mean, reading about nicholas ray that like godard loves nicholas ray and you can just see you can see conversation happening over time so we'll get into all of this um but this was such a great uh such a great film to watch maybe let's just start with our, our basic beginning what is your history with this film is this something that you saw a long time ago is this something you've come to recently
1: I've seen uh, it. It's been quite a while. uh, I'm trying to remember, Sam, it probably was about uh, 15 years ago that I really started digging into film noir. and just kind of started watching, you know, all the films I could get a hold of. And so probably sometime in the last 15 years, I watched this for the first time. I've probably been back to it two or three times since then. It's one one of my favorite noirs.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this is a movie that I... I think I had probably heard referenced, but uh, it, it didn't, it, the name didn't strike me as like, oh, that is clearly a canonical movie. But the more I read about this, this is actually really highly regarded in terms of the world of noir. Mm-hmm. When people put out um, lists of, you know, what are the best noir movies, this at times is at the top of that list.
1: Yeah, also, also very highly regarded among uh, those who appreciate Humphrey Bogart's career. Um, you know a lot of people say kind of two things about the film in regard to Bogart one that it's his finest performance or one of them and two that it's actually the character who is Dick Steele is the character closest to Humphrey Bogart himself um, Bogart was possessed evidently of a, of a temper that could erupt and there's one story that he actually uh, had a Uh, it's uh, an episode of rage when he was on his his yacht uh, or his boat Santana that frightened his wife Lauren Bacall whom he wanted for this film by the way but could not get
0: I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Bogart is somebody as a child of the 80s there was definitely like a Bogart Renaissance just in the culture Um, Mm -hmm. he's somebody who I saw people do impressions of or even honestly even in like kids cartoons that i watched when i was little there was often a character who would like be a bogart-esque character and do kind of that voice so it's like it's like a persona i was aware of long before i kind of understood who he was mm. um i loved him in this movie and i and and what i loved about him and that maybe this touches on the that this is uh like you said maybe the closest to his personality is the whole time I was watching this, I was aware that I was watching Humphrey Bogart, like I was never not watching Humphrey Bogart. At the same time, unlike other films in which he's great, I did not feel like he was playing a part. I felt like I mean, he's not somebody you would you would call a naturalistic actor necessarily, mm-hmm. but but I but this felt very real in a way that treasure of the sierra madre or even casablanca like doesn't exactly i mean i feel like i'm watching mm-hmm. the movie star humphrey bogart play this part this i didn't feel like that at all
1: no I, that that's a really interesting point sam i hadn't i hadn't thought about that um you don't think of him as a naturalistic or a method actor or anything like that but right he seems to fit into the role of dick Steele uh very 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 comfortably yeah
0: So the other thought I had uh, just while we're still on Bogart is I also, you spend a lot of this movie looking at him, like looking at his face. There's even the, uh, the line that um, Laurel has about how I liked his face. So I, I found myself, especially the second time I watched this movie, I just looking at his face. um, And this is, this is maybe, this is maybe off topic of this movie, but maybe not because we're thinking about the sort of movie star persona of Bogart. Um, Have you ever seen, somewhat up close a real movie star
1: no i've seen a a couple weeks ago i ran into a television star but i've not seen a movie star up close (laughs) like i just i
0: i was sitting here because i was watching this again in my office and i was writing notes and i just started to imagine like forget the fact that he died a long time ago if humphrey bogart walked into my office like (laughs) like he doesn't he doesn't look like a person. He looks like a movie star. Like, it's, it's, there is, and I, so I was trying to get my head around like, what is it about him where there are other people in this movie that I would, I, if they walked into my office, I'd be like, well, that's an attractive looking person or something. But, but like, and I don't know if it's just he's so iconic. That you, you see him depicted in different ways, but like I don't know that I could accept like I feel like my brain would reject seeing someone like him in real life. I like I can't I can't imagine he's somebody who actually like had a real life, and obviously he did, but again, that's off topic, but but this movie just made me think about that so much.
1: Well, but but also what you're saying is a slightly different point, Sam. Also, what you're saying though makes me think too about there are certain uh there are certain actors who are kind of transformed by celluloid. Um, that was said about Gary Cooper, hmm. that you would actually watch him perform uh, and you wouldn't be all that impressed. But then you go watch the film and it's like, oh, my gosh, look what he's doing. So maybe there's a sense in which, you know, uh, Bogart is sort of transformed by, uh, by celluloid when, uh, when, when we watch him. Um, the other thing I do want to mention about this film and, and Humphrey Bogart is, um, and this gets a little bit into one of the themes of the film, is that he actually produced it with his own company, Santana. Uh, productions because he wanted a little more artistic freedom and of course that's one of the themes of this film right what does it mean to be an artist can movies actually be art or are they just you know ways to sell popcorn so i uh, so, so i think that's another way in which this film is is deeply personal uh for for bogart
0: absolutely no he he uh from the very opening scene when they're trying to get him to read and write althea bruce there is uh there there's that tension and he's talking to the i think it's another writer where he calls him a popcorn salesman yes yeah 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 yeah. and um and then he says and that guy says the only difference between you and i is i've come to accept it and yeah and it's like and, and that okay that also just speaks to like this is a great script this is such a good script uh before we dig into the movie though can you tell me a little bit about nicholas ray i so Uh, probably his most famous movie in terms of something that as I was looking through his filmography, things that I had heard of is 1955's rebel without a cause, which I don't think I've ever seen. I think I've seen parts of it, but I don't think I've ever, I was trying to put the movie together in my head. And I realized I maybe haven't seen that movie, but that's definitely uh, another iconic movie that, that I have heard of, but like, like who is he as a director? Like what's indicative of Ray as a filmmaker?
1: That's actually a really good question because um, you know Ray was one of those filmmakers who really kind of worked in in pretty much every every possible genre um, and so and yet at the same time he was considered an auteur as you as you mentioned earlier you know the French critics really kind of idolized him. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to say that, that, I, that I think of a particular visual stamp connected with Ray. One thing that's been said about Ray, which is a really interesting thing, I can't think of any other filmmakers I would say this about, is that he's very interested in architecture. He's, he's very interested in how characters are framed within uh, certain settings, especially in, in interiors. Um, but also later in his career, we don't see this in a lonely place, but later in his career, he becomes very enamored of color and widescreen. And wide um i would say like a lot of a lot of of directors i think he's actually he has a lot of kind of recurrent themes uh (laughs) his own life was an extraordinarily messy life uh i mean he he's kind of like a character in his own right and he's really interested in a sense in characters that in some ways are semi-autobiographical or also have the kind of same uh messy relationships that uh that that he had um so anyway i I will mention i'll mention a few other films of his uh, a couple, another really interesting noir with uh, Robert Ryan is on dangerous ground. He made a really strange western called Johnny Guitar. Um, I mentioned last week, Bigger Than Life was one that Godard particularly liked. His first film, which uh, Truffaut thought was his best film, uh, is another noir called They Live by Night. So he just had a, a variety. He also was an actor himself. Uh, he appeared in one of vendors, late later films, uh, the, the uh, American Friend. Um, and he was a writer as well, which leads me to to another point I wanted to pick up on when you were talking about um, adapting Althea Bruce. One of the ways in which this film is is reflects uh, is self referential is the film is an adaptation of a novel that refuses to follow the plot of that novel in in in, in any sense. Uh, so Ray himself has he himself is a writer. In fact, he was. He was revising the film. Another Here's another Ray characteristic. He was revising the film even as he was shooting. So according to what I read on the 120-page shooting script, there's only four pages that haven't been in some ways revised or, or changed. So in that sense, he's very autourish, very hands-on in writing his own screenplays or revising them.
0: Well, and it's interesting. You, you talk about like him having a uh, <laughs> an autobiographical element to this. Like he is also married to Gloria Graham, and their marriage is falling apart as this love story is falling apart. So, yeah, I think I think for for Bogart, for Graham, for Ray, this like. This must have been such a strange movie to make. I mean, at one point he's he's living on the set uh, yes. because because they don't want people to know that their marriage is falling apart. So he's claiming like, oh, yeah, I'm just working really late. but in reality, like like how do you direct your wife in a movie like this? like it's 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 a movie about the making of this movie would be fascinating, yes. <laughs> you know, just with all the different all the different uh, pieces there. It's interesting that you talk about architecture because i i didn't read anything about that but as i was watching this movie especially the just the the kind of apartment complex that they live in and both of the apartments that you're you spend a lot of time in i do feel like i know those spaces mm. really intimately and 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 i and they spatially make sense so it it makes sense for you to say yeah he's somebody who was was really interested in in that and how characters occupy those spaces <clears throat> those spaces seem so real to me like i could Oftentimes in movies, I feel like I can't map out the spatially how things are happening, and that's often because they're not shot in real places. But but this, I definitely felt like I understood that complex. I feel like I've been there. So that that definitely jumped out at me.
1: And and, and, and not only is he living on the set, as you said, Sam, but the set itself is based on his first West Hollywood apartment. Right. So you're right. (laughs) It it really is like they're making a film which is about their own own life at the the same time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, another interesting thing about this movie is it comes out in 1950. And this Mm -hmm. is such a movie about the entertainment industry and about Hollywood. Uh, so it's part of a triumvirate, at least, of movies in 1950. You have Sunset Boulevard with Billy Wilder, All About Eve with uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, and then In a Lonely Place with Nicholas Ray. And it's like all of them are talking about this same, like, 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 like. There, It would be such a great triple feature of 1950s sure. movies. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but like, like, where is the movie industry in 1950 where everybody is thinking about some of these questions? It's pretty fascinating.
1: And I—that's I, a—I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to point that out. And of course, we have watched and talked about those other two films as well. And I think one of the things that sets this film apart—and it sets it apart from a lot of noirs as well—is it's real. And, and this may go back to our conversation about how deeply personal the film was for everybody involved. This is a film with a real—it's got a real heart to it. Um, I have to say, as I said, I've seen the film several times, but. I, I was moved almost to tears by the end of this film, um, which, of course, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but uh, this is not the ending that Ray originally wrote. It's not the ending he originally shot. Uh, they shot it, and he said, it can't end this way. Uh, and, and then he and instead we get the ending that we actually get, in which, in some ways, people have said, Ray himself has suggested that the Bogart character at the end uh, could be a portrait of Ray himself. You know, what is going to happen to... To dick Steele after this uh and uh uh, ray was known to become addicted to drugs to be self-destructive behavior uh is that what was going to happen to to bogey at the end
0: but it's interesting to think about um we talk a lot about uh we've talked a lot in this series about love stories and like whether or not i feel convinced that the people are in love (laughs) i do in this movie and that's part of what makes it i think so affecting and and this movie also likes to comment on movies about that so we even have that scene when he's cutting the grapefruit and he says here's how you write a love scene it can't be about people telling you that they're in love you have to see it and when i read that i was or when i saw that i was like nicholas ray you are right that's exactly my point i you can't just tell me like i have to feel it and man do i feel it and it makes the ending of this movie so painful because i feel like when she says that 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 the line on the phone where it's when when he says like oh he's been cleared she says that would have mattered so much to us yesterday but now (laughs) it doesn't matter or would have meant so much to us that's one of the great lines in movies like my goodness that uh, that just it killed me when i when she said that because i was really pulling for them (laughs) even though like they're both tricky characters to think about like i was uh, i was so um i so bought into that relationship
1: and that and that is one of the uh, that is one of the thematic elements of Noir, that these characters I mean it's in, embodied in the uh, the title a lot of the past that, that and also embodied in the notion that um, novelist George Eliot said character is destiny um, It's like they they are trying to overcome who they fundamentally are, and on the one hand they are bringing out the destiny, hunter, but on the other hand they are. Um, they are, I want to say, exposing the worst. But on the other hand, the, the, the characteristics that each of them has, the self-undermining characteristics also emerge at the same time. And it's a battle between, in a sense, there's two sides. I mean, Dix is very clearly a Jekyll and Hyde. She isn't exactly a Jekyll and Hyde, but she's a, she's a fight or flight. Uh, and their relationship, that's the irony, right? That it brings out what's really good about each of them. And they're really trying to reinforce each other but then that you just can't escape these fundamental, I won't maybe call them tragic flaws, but they are flaws or simply characteristics.
0: Yeah, and and I, I love the idea of uh you said uh character is destiny, um it, because there is this sense where um you don't necessarily know the ending. And one of the great things about this movie is the The as I was preparing for this, usually I watch the movie and then I read stuff about it. And I did that this time, but I did like grab a bunch of articles to read. And so many of the titles, including the poster for the movie, uh, I believe the poster for the movie says, let me read this. um, And big print on the poster. It says Bogart suspense picture with a surprise finish. And I was like, don't tell me there's a surprise finish, (laughs) But but this movie is full of foreshadowing to all of this stuff that's going to happen. So there is this sort of weight of, fate or destiny to it and at the same time i didn't know what the surprise ending was going to be if it had been the original ending that ray shot i would have been like oh i guess that's a surprise but this is even better because it is like he walks you right up to that ending and then it's not that ending but it's something that is even more of a gut punch because it's like well they could be together still but they kind of can't Mm -hmm. um so again, like thinking of foreshadowing in this movie, one of the first lines you hear in this movie is when Mildred says, when she's talking about Althea Bruce, when she's still in the coat check room, she says, I already know the end. I read that first. Yeah. And there is this sense of like, well, that's everything about this movie. And and then there's later when they're at the beach and um, Brub's wife. Is asking about how writers work, and and he she asks like, well, do you know the do you have it all sketched out before you start? And he says you'd be in awful trouble if you didn't. So that so th- there's like all of these like writer lines that are pointing you to like this is not a this is a story that is hurtling to a conclusion, uh, and and so there is sort of that that weight of fate in there.
1: Well, you know what? Yeah, I, one of the things I had forgotten about this about this film is um, how incredibly well written it is. You know, one of the one of the things I ended up doing with this particular film is I I have about um, a dozen or fifteen lines that I've just written down. I'm not sure if I'm not going to talk about all of them, but it just it just amazed me. I had forgotten um, that it was so that it was so tightly written. Um, but one of the things I, I, so as a result, one of the other film references that I found really interesting, which goes back to an earlier film we watched about a year ago or so is Brub says to him, you make me homesick, homesick for some of the worst years of our lives. And I just felt like that is such a, that is such a hit at the best years of our lives. And one of the things that we should talk about, which is also true of noir is this is a film that is it falls under the long shadow of the war. You know, most noir is post-World War II, and there's a lot of ways in which the heroes of noir are kind of damaged by the war. And what's interesting about this is when they're trying to analyze Dix's character and is he like psychotic, is he sick, whatever, and they go back to his role in the war. Right. And, and, and Brub talks about what a great commander he was and he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. And it makes you wonder whether to a large extent what's going on with Dix is the violent tendencies he has work perfectly well if you're in a war, but they don't work very well when the war is over. And I just find, I just found that a really fascinating kind of subtext throughout the film.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. I have a whole section in my notes about this being a post-World War II movie. So let's let's just get into it. So what you just said is interesting. Um, I'll just make a quick connection because I don't think this is too deep of a connection we want to go down. But it's interesting how when uh, Fritz Lang is making M, that's what he was thinking about. He was like, okay, well, well, the, the backstory he kind of wrote for Beckert and then didn't use was he's mm-hmm. a veteran of the war and that that impacted him, right? That um, – yeah. So, so I, uh, I love my favorite kind of world war two story is the story about people coming home from world war two, where they almost never talk about it, but there is, like you said, this shadow and it's, it's referenced and it's like, clearly these people are impacted by it and it set, has set their trajectory, but we're not going to go back and really dig into it. We just know that this traumatic collective experience happen. And so that's why it's interesting that Brub knows him from the war, you know, like, so Brub he, so Brub kind of has two commanders, right? He has cool. his commander from the war and then he has Lochner and, you know, and, and Brub says, you know, you, you know me, I'm a police officer. I follow orders. And it's like, okay, well, well, which of his mentors is he, is he uh, going to follow? Uh And he even says, you know, like, like I just learned more from, you know, 10 minutes of talking to of talking to Dix than I did from you know all the other things Lochner had me doing. So there is this almost like competition for Brub between them. Uh, we also know things like Dix hasn't written anything worth writing since the war. So like like clearly he is was must have been a wildly successful screenwriter before because One of the things you notice is he has money like he's he's always handing money out and and pretty big chunks of money at times. Um, And so so he seems very easy with that, even though he's living, uh, you know, this is now five years after the war and seems like he hasn't done anything of value since then. So clearly that has even impacted who he is as an artist.
1: You know, Sam, I I actually think we could go a little deeper with the M connection because that was one of the things that surprised me about the film. And, you know, I I put it, I I wanted to watch it because of the dialogue with contempt. But I think, and this may be pushing a point a little bit, but there's so much conversation about this question of um, Dix's temperament and how that's just the way he is. And Mel says towards the end, always violent. It's as much a part of him as the color of his eyes. Hmm. And I can't help but think about Beckert, Peter Laurie's plea at the end of M that what I can't help it. This is the way I am. And I think that people are making the exactly the same argument for Dix. Sometimes they make it as Mel does in terms of that's who he is. He, Mel says, you knew he was like dynamite. He has to explode sometimes. Or, or you make the argument because um, he has an artistic temperament, which is what Brub kind of says. And even Dix himself says that, you know, uh, look for a man like me only without my artistic temperament. So, I mean, I realize there's a big difference between a man prone to punch people out uh, and a man who ch- kills children. But I well, when
0: he's so. holding that rock over the over the football oh, yeah. I mean, player, he's, like he's Beckert at that he's point. going to
1: Stop it, Dix! You're going to kill him. Yeah. So I really think there's an. I, I really think there's a much deeper, more interesting dialogue. So I really love the fact that you reminded us that Beckert was originally also a war survivor because I think that says an awful lot about uh, civilization and its discontents, to a coin a phrase.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's so interesting when they start to go through his rap sheet um, and they do, they do it twice in the movie and all of that is post-war. Yes. Um, You know, so there is this sense of like this, this guy is, is, is not, um, is not the the same. Now, one of the things that i loved about this movie as, um, as a noir and, th- and th- I want to stay on Dick's character, but, but, but this is something I noticed the second time I watched it. Um, so one thing that you said, and, and this is something you can't read about this movie without people writing this line. So I'm just going to say the obvious thing, which is, this is uh, a movie about a screenwriter, but it's also like the, one of the best examples of screenwriting, you know, like it's, it's commenting on screenwriting and it's screenwriting about screenwriting. But what I found interesting is as a noir, I feel like there are moments where, Dix is saying things that he thinks a noir hero would say. Yes. I don't know that that's him I think cuz okay, and and I'll, I'll give you a, a part where um where this jumped out at me cuz I had subtitles on and there's a point where even in what he's saying he's quoting his thoughts as if he's, like, writing. So um, he, this is after he first goes to the police station. He's back at the apartment complex, and he's talking to Laurel. And he says, when you first walked into the police station, I said to myself, there she is. That's the one that's different. She's not coy or cute or corny. She's a good guy. I'm glad she's on my side. She speaks her mind, and she knows what she wants. He's not saying that. He's saying, I wrote those lines for what a person would say. What like So there is this, like... Uh, it would be too far to say sociopath, but there is this thing where he's like thinking about, he has a detachment from what's happening around him and he's viewing it as a writer. He's writing this, he's writing lines for the movie that we're watching and the same way Ray is writing the movie as, as it's going or rewriting the movie as it's going. So it's almost like a, like meta, like he's almost like both in it and watching it and, and feeding lines, even to the point, and, and the the best example of this is how halfway through the movie he writes the final lines of the movie and says, mm-hmm. I just don't know where they go yet. And yeah. then we we realize at the end she knows where they go. She even says there, I think it's in the farewell note, which we see her to tear up a farewell note. So I wonder if those lines are in mm-hmm. her farewell note. And then she says it when he walks out. And so so there is, and and I think that explains his weird detachment from mildred's death because he does seem strange when you see him and and lochner points this out when you see him in the the first time he goes to the police station and lochner's like if i had spent a part of an evening with with a woman and she turned up dead like i would my reaction would be different and so he does seem a little sociopathic at that (laughs) point because he's like we're, please give me an emotion or something. And I think this is, this is the kind of – it's either a writerly detachment that he has. It also might be the way that he masks or compensates for these violent tendencies or for these parts of the, – I just feel like his psychology is fascinating. And the fact that he's a writer makes it
1: even more interesting. And that, and, 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 that, and that first conversation with Lochner, that's where he gets off so many of those wonderful, hard-boiled noir lines. Right? Just I didn't say I was a gentleman. I said I was tired. Uh, and they said yes. something like, uh, "Unless you plan to arrest me for lack of emotion." But I, I, I think you're right, Sam. There is that kind of, um, there is that kind of detachment that he is observing his life and figuring out ways to kind of, you know, how would I approach this if it were a movie, or how could I make this a movie? I also felt, and I, and I, and this may, this may be a little off, um, maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but I also felt that that first conversation with him and um, and Laurel in his apartment. To me, it was structured a lot like uh, the first conversation in, in Double Indemnity between, mm. uh, between Barbara Stanwyck and, and Fred McMurray. And be, it's not exactly, it's it's it, there's a similar kind of banter going on. And I feel like that was almost a self-conscious reference by by Ray, at least, to um, a very different uh Kind of a very different twist on 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 the on how the main characters meet. So you have uh, you have Dick Steele and Laurel Gray kind of falling in love in a police interrogation room, which is a very different kind of way in. So anyway, so to me, there's a little echo of double of double indemnity going on
0: there. Yeah, I also like how I mean one of the things we talked about with as we about other noirs is like different um, uh, tropes or or, or like. Uh, techniques for noir storytelling and one of them is voiceover and this yeah. movie doesn't have voiceover but i feel like his writerliness is sort of like he's injecting here's where the voiceover would go so i'm gonna say like a movie line instead of like a human line so it's like i i, I do feel like he's watching the movie that he's in and 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 i and and so that's a way to do a noir thing without just being like here's where we're gonna pull in <laughs> Voiceover, right? In the same way with the war, instead of giving us a flashback, we're just going to give us this little shadows of things from
1: the past. One, one more thing about Dix as a writer, and one more connection to Contempt is uh, just as in Contempt, there's this issue of, you know, does a writer have any integrity? Does a writer have any significance? You know, in that first scene when Dix is going into Paul's and the kids are looking for autographs, and he writes his down, and then they said he's nobody important. Which is exactly, I mean, so the film is no one of those films that kind of has a grievance against the way that Hollywood treats the writers, uh, which, you know, and that, and that, and we, we've seen that before in other films as well.
0: The other thing I love about him as a writer is, and this is just like one of those kind of brilliant ideas in this movie, is the idea that maybe the, like, maybe the best detective is a screenwriter. <laughs> because they've written so many of these scenes. So like when he's at the dinner with brub uh, and brub and his wife, and they're talking about the murder and he's like, yeah. you guys don't have the imagination to picture the murder scene. <laughs> then he starts to walk through it. And then when he has, I mean, there's that great scene where he has them reenact it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you, it's, it's great. Cause it, there's two things going on there. For one thing you're seeing, you know, as he leans in to have his eyes kind of lit up by that lamp, you're seeing in the same way Beckert, like turns into a different person you're seeing him turn into a different person as he's directing it but at the same time you're like oh my gosh this guy actually does understand how this would work why are the cops not putting two and two together that like yeah if if she was already dead she would be in the trunk so clearly this has to be how it happened um and he you know and then he he ends by saying i've killed dozens of people in the pictures so it's like (laughs) yeah like it's like i've done this before i've i i'm 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 not a murderer, but I've thought through how you would murder people. And 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 as a writer, I have to think through all of the logic of this stuff. And as a police officer or detective, you also need to be thinking through the logic of these things. So the idea of write of screenwriter as as detective is kind of great.
1: Right. And, and and also it's it's another it's another abiding noir interest. You know, you and I talked last week about um, the popularity of Freudianism and psychology in films beginning in the 30s. And not necessarily in a Freudian way, but noir is, is always interested in the psychology of its characters. And in sense, there's always an, in, an interior element to the film. And certainly I think that the, uh, here it's not so much the psychologist has an insight into human uh, behavior and human nature, but it's the, it's the, the, the person with imagination. It's the writer, uh, the creative type that actually has that insight.
0: Yeah, I um, I, back to the sort of the, the the notions of some of the like doomed foreshadowing. Now, I will say, I loved um that kind of middle. It, it's a pretty short middle section of this movie when things are when things go well. Mm-hmm. When Mel shows up and and Dix has been writing all night and and um, Laurel's there, because I think that the fact that he slows down to give us that. really important because it does make me believe like oh this could work like like they're they seem good together they seem happy and productive and you know maybe overproductive but it's like well this is great and and you can see mel is my favorite character in this movie and you can see him just so excited because he's like oh you this is maybe the one point where you get a picture of maybe what Dix was like before the war maybe this is what the successful writer Dix was like where he could just get obsessed on a project and be working and almost shut off the rest of the world. And he's got somebody there to care for him. And, um, and, uh, so I think that, that plays such a, such an important role because it stops this whole thing from just hurtling towards like, this is a, this is a doomed relationship. Now what I think is interesting is the story that he's writing that you as you point out, he, uh, refuses to, to actually read the book or to, (laughs) um, faithfully adapt when when um mildred is telling the story and i love how she mispronounces althea and apollo the god apollo <laughs> um uh it is a story about a doomed romance in the shadow of a murder investigation yes. and the first time through i didn't really pay that much attention the second time i watched it i was like oh oh that's what this movie is too so i thought that was an interesting foreshadowing the other foreshadowing thing which is a more of a image of menace is the second time I watched it. I noticed how often uh, Dix puts both hands mm-hmm. around Laurel's throat, yes. you know? And, and then, and then at the end he nearly kills her through, through strangling her. But every time he kisses her, like he puts his hands on her and you just, you're, you just see these big hairy Bogart hands around her throat and it just became, it became more terrifying the second time around because mm-hmm. it's like there he's visually laying so much track there.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and even though I've watched the film before and I know that he doesn't kill her at that point, it's, it still, it still seems like a possibility. And, we, and I should say, since we alluded to the original ending uh, of the film, he does kill her in the original ending of the film. Uh, and so the irony you have in the original ending of the film is the, the, the news that He's been cleared of the murder of Mildred, uh, is, is delivered as he gets arrested for the killing of Laurel. And um, as I said earlier, after, after Ray shot that, he said, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do it. He said, you know, the original ending, it, it tied it up very neatly. And, he saw, and, he, and then he said to himself, he said, romances don't have to end that way. Marriages don't have to end that way. They don't have to end in violence. He, and then Ray says, let the audience make up its own mind what's going to happen to Bogey when he goes outside the apartment. Hmm. And so I just I just love the fact that what what Ray manages to do is he manages to have his cake and eat it, too, because it doesn't matter that Bogey doesn't kill Laurel. What matters is that he appears capable of doing of doing mm-hmm. it. So he gets a much more complex ending as as a result. Um I also want to say uh, I want to go back to the, the Mildred telling the story of Al- Althea or Alethea. Bruce as she says I I have forgotten another thing that I forgot about, I forgotten about her other um, all of her malapropisms so she she calls the bacteriologist a bachelorologist <laughs> and who looks through a microbe <laughs> <It's> just, yes
0: <laughs> She also says something she says he has another line that I think speaks to this, like, is it is is thing are things faded or not? Um, when she says, I used to think actors made oh. up their lines, you know, that there wasn't a writer. Uh, and then his response is, Well, when they're famous enough, they do. Yes. And there is this sense of like, you know, and this maybe gets to the art and commerce part, which maybe we can talk about. There is this sense of like Yes, there is fate, but maybe maybe like if you're rich enough or famous enough, you can overcome fate. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it makes me think about when Mel says, you know, if if um is it what's the name of the the producer? Is it Brody? I can't remember. Yeah, Whoever, yeah. Yeah. He says like like if he likes the script, it won't matter if you leave. It's like he just needs something to feel successful and powerful enough or something to mm-hmm. to like it, because maybe then it starts to feel like you have control again. Um, this idea of, you know, if you're, if you're famous enough, you do make up your lines. But, but everybody else is living according to a fate. So, so I'd like, that moment in the film, again, the second time through, it just, it just hit me over the face. Like, that's a really interesting idea to think about.
1: And, and, and of course, again, more of the Hollywood self-referentiality. Mildred is saying that to a star who's probably big enough to make up his own lines. And, in fact, he does in collaboration with Ray on this film.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Another thing that's interesting about this movie is I feel like post beach party, this becomes more and more Laurel's story. I feel like it it definitely shifts because I feel like you're, you're tracking with Dix and Laurel is with Dix. And after that party, it's more, and maybe because you, you, you like them both so much, but you understand laurel needs to get out so it becomes a story of like is she going to get out of this or 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 is she also trapped in this kind of uh trapped in this kind of fate and then we know that her pattern i mean whatever happened with baker was something else she had to was another jam she had to get herself out of so that's there's sort of her past is haunting her there um but i really i really love that and then she gets all of those great final lines are her lines not his lines
1: yeah, I, I think you're right. The, the, when you talked earlier about kind of that middle part of the film where they have that kind of romantic idol and you know it's going to come, come to an end, that gets really balanced beautifully by her sort of her own little uh, investigation, right? She goes and she has that conversation with Sylvia and she says, "I wanna see these, I want to say these things out loud because I know they're silly and you're going to laugh, but you didn't laugh. And then stylistically, I love the montage that Ray, Ray puts in as she's having those bad dreams. And you get Martha coming up, and Martha's a really, boy, she's a. She is she ever a hard boiled noir character? Yes, uh, and you know you, they still don't know who killed that checkroom girl, and this isn't going to be easy to get out of as it was with Mister Baker. And then Lochner is in her dream, the act of a sick mind with an urge to destroy, an erratic, violent man. He's our most logical suspect. Killing has a fascination for him. So that I mean it's interesting because um, I'll make a connection. I just thought of this very minute, and that is it reminds me of the dream sequence in Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, uh, with, with Jimmy Stewart. Um, and that's, again, in dream sequences or other elements of the subconscious are often common in noir. And so it's interesting how you get this big contrast. The other contrast I would make is between the first part of the film, which happens a lot with him and Laurel in daylight, and the second part of the film, which almost always happens at, dar- at night. The dark mm-hmm. beach party, the drive in the car, her dreaming, everything kind of descends into a literal darkness.
0: Yeah, uh, I have a few more items, but I want to I hand the ball off to you. Are there things you want to talk about with this movie?
1: Uh, at least two, I'll see if something else occurs. The first thing I just want to mention is, you never would have known this from the look of the film, but the cinematographer, Burnett Guffey, he shot Bonnie and Clyde. Just, oh, just, wow. wanna, just huh. wanted to mention that. Well, the, you know, the other thing that we haven't talked about, and a lot of the things I read didn't talk as much about this as I would have thought would be necessary or important, would be, the, the whole the character of the Fesbian, mm. and Dix's um, befriending of the Fesbian, and the Fesbian is mo- by Robert Warwick, one of those wonderful actors who shows up in Preston Surge's films as well. Um, I, I, it's, it's probably a thinly veiled portrait of John Barrymore, uh, you know, the great American actor who was also a hopeless alcoholic. But what I love to me not only is he in the film because it shows us Dick a different side of Dix. Dick's solicitous side. This is a guy that Hollywood is uh, makes fun of. They've rejected him, and Dick sides with him. But most importantly, especially because of my former life as an English professor, his quoting of Shakespeare's Sonnet twenty nine um, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. I alone beweep my outcast state. And the and the couplet, the end of that sonnet, for thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. And he says this early in the film and it's one more element of the foreshadowing that you were ta- or you were talking about because it ends with that positive couplet but it begins with in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes so i, I think one could do a little exploration about how Sonnet 29 comments hmm. on this film
0: well and it, it's interesting how that also then feels like it connects it to something like sunset boulevard where it's like here is the old the old movie star kind yeah. of, you know, no longer fitting into the new world of films. And he's like, and he, he's asking, like uh, he even asked Dix at the end when, um, when uh, Francis comes over and says that uh, Brody wants her for the part of uh, Althe- Althea Bruce. He says, uh, is there a juicy part in it for me? You know, <laughs> that, that there is this sense of like, I don't, Hollywood may be done with me, but I'm not sure that I want to be done with Hollywood yet. Um, so there is there is sort of that uh, that that Sunset Boulevard connection. Um, I had a couple. I also wrote down a bunch of lines that I thought were were kind of great. Um, one of them comes from Martha, and it's and and I feel like this is mm-hmm. it's it's like almost too good of a line coming from her when she's talking about going back to Baker. And she says, remember, in the beginning was the land, the motion pictures came later. Because Baker's a real estate person. So there's yeah. like, yeah, like 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 where where is the money? Where is the security? And it's in, it's in land. It's you know, it's like it's like like other you know, like that is the old established thing. And um and the motion pictures came later. And I just thought like it's 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 a strange line coming from her, but it's great.
1: Yeah. And, and and it makes me think forward about 20 uh, 25 years to a great neo noir Chinatown. I thought about uh, which, that too. Which is, which is so much about the land, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the other the other line which again um as I think about it I mean, this is it's about art and commerce, but it's also about uh, Dick's doing detective work and nobody seems to notice this Um, when he uh, meets up with Henry Kessler in the police station and they shake hands (laughs) and and Kessler or uh, um, Dick says, like, you're the most logical suspect. And he kind of lays it out. And Kessler says, "Uh, what an imagination that's from writing pictures. And Dick says, what a grip that's from counting money. and we know that he strangled her. So it, so he is also commenting on like, huh, you seem like a pretty strong guy, but there's also like, like I'm the one who I'm the one who writes movies. I'm the creative imaginative one. You're yeah. the one who counts money. Uh, I, like, I just thought that that line is just, it, and it's it's almost a throwaway and nobody picks up on it, but like he, he even there is laying out, like, see, this guy is capable of this too. Yeah. Um, so we talked about how this movie came out in 1950. So there's some obvious um, potential pairings if you were going to double feature this movie with others. Um, Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve or Naturals, you could put it with. If you were going to do a, a double feature with In a Lonely Place, uh, I'm, I'm curious what movie comes to, comes to mind that you would watch with this.
1: I think that, um, because I know that, uh, Curtis Hanson, the director admired in a lonely place so much, I might, I might put it with LA confidential. Um, I, I, that might be a cure. It might be an interesting pairing.
0: Yeah. I, so here's the mo- So I also thought, <clears throat> I mean, an obvious one would be, I think this and contempt would be interesting to watch together, right. but I thought of another movie that I watched again recently, and I don't know all of the reasons why I feel this, but it's more just like in my gut, it, oddly reminded me of this like i would watch this and david lynch's mulholland drive together
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: i feel I like I, I feel like those those are there is some kind of conversation there and i'm not even sure what honestly partially it's the hotel it's the uh, apartment complex in both of those they kind of remind me of each other that was maybe maybe it's the feel of that place um, in both of those,
1: yeah, but th- that's a brilliant choice, Sam. Because, it, but it's also because Mulholland Drive is is also about making movies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that uh, and it's about you know the desire to be a star. Mm-hmm. Uh, what ex- what the, and it's also about the. Uh, Uh, about imagination sort of gone completely wrong. I mean, there's a lot of questions about her sanity in that film. So I think that'd be a a great pairing. And I do want to say one more thing along those lines that just as one of Dix's strengths and weaknesses is his imagination, that's true of Laurel as well, right? If Laurel had not, imagined that perhaps Dix could do this, they would have been in a much better place. So I also think that though, one of the sub themes of this film is the double-edged sword that is the imagination, hmm. uh, which is to me a very Shakespearean theme that you see in Othello, for example.
0: Right, because if you can imagine, you can also imagine all yeah. of the things that people, because like like that, uh, and this is where it maybe ties into contempt a little bit is, as I, as I, again, this was all on the second watch. I feel like I noticed this more. Dix seems post beach party seems so insecure about everything he's insecure that they're not going to like the script Mm -hmm. and then even when he finds out they like the script he's already past that and now he's insecure about something else when he goes into laurel's apartment and she has the door locked he says who's in there we've never had anything about concerned about those things but he starts talking about going back to baker and all this stuff and it's like he is incapable of just accepting the good in front of him because of his insecurities
1: yeah, and that's exactly one of, the, one of the, uh, the the critics I read about it says that they are, we talked about this earlier a little bit, but these two characters are too victimized by their own selves to sustain this kind of happiness, mm-hmm. which is exactly the, but that's why, that is truly tragic. That, exactly. That's, that's truly tragic. Because they should work. <laughs> they should, but they <laughs> yes, don't.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Barrett, uh, what do you have? So we're going to take a break ne- next week. So we're going to come back in two weeks. Uh, what do you have for us?
1: Well, you know, I'm going to. i I, I want to keep on this theme of movies being about movies, and I want to do a contemporary, a more recent film from 2015, uh, "Me and Earl and the Dying Girl."
0: Oh. I have heard of this movie. I don't know anything about it. So I'm very, very excited. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for uh for recommending this film. Uh this is way, way, way better than like, like I just I thought this was gonna be another, you know, another noir and it was gonna kind of mix in with those. But this is this one's special, I think. Um, as both as a Bogart movie. I'm trying to figure out like I love I love Casablanca so much, but like I might like this performance better um i really i really think he's pretty amazing so um so thank you for recommending this thank you for having this conversation that is all the time that we have uh but we will be back in two weeks to talk about me earl and the dying girl in the video store